Colossians 3 is where we're going to be today, and we're going to start in verse 18, and we're reading all the way through the first verse of chapter 4, okay? So Colossians 3, 18 through 4, 1. All right, so everybody should have a Bible open in front of you. You should have your Bible with you, open in front of you, and we're starting in verse 18 of Colossians 3. Paul says, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, this is verse 23, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Let me pray yet again before we dig into that. Lord God, thank you again for being here in chapel today. Lord, we've came to you several times in prayer today already, and really, honestly, we can never pray enough, Lord, to speak to you, to come to you, to know that you're with us even now, that your spirit is among your people, that you're, you're speaking to us through your word. God, I pray that these students, even in this moment, might recognize the gravity of the situation anytime we gather and the Bible is opened and we read it and try to understand it together. We as creatures in this moment are standing before the face of Almighty God, our Creator. And He is speaking to us in His Word. He's, he's giving us knowledge and, and understanding so that we might grow, that we might be redeemed, that we might find life. Lord, You're so kind to do that for us. You're so full of mercy and grace and joy and peace and love. And Lord, I pray that You would be pleased to remove distractions, to remove anything that could hinder us from listening to the voice that we were made for. We love you, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So this weekend, we have an event happening here at the school, right? And we have a musical, Frozen, happening this weekend. I know a lot of you guys have put in a lot of hard work for it. I know it's going to be awesome. I've seen the pictures in the hallway. I've heard people even just singing around the hallways constantly the songs, and I know it's going to be a really good show. Specifically, my daughters, I have two daughters, right? I have, my oldest is named Lila, she's six. And then I have a daughter named Zoe, who's three. I'm taking them on Friday night to the play, and they are ecstatic. Like, for them, this is everything. Being able to go see a Frozen show is just like peak existence for my daughters, okay? And they're really excited. They even talking about they're going to wear their dresses, they're going to do all the things, okay? But Lila, specifically, went through this phase when she was younger. She's six now, but when she was around Zoe's age, like three or four, where she was obsessed with Frozen. Like, watched it every day. It's all she cared about. So much so that when she was three or four, she went through this phase where she literally introduced herself to new people as Elsa. She said that was her name, okay? And we'd be like, no, you're not Elsa. You don't have ice powers. That's not what you do. But she's really, really into the show. So keep that in mind, okay? We got this musical happening. My daughter's really into Frozen. And let's just pretend for a moment that it's Friday night. And let's pretend we come here on Friday night, my daughters and I are sitting, we're watching the play, we're waiting for things to get going, and then as things are getting moving, let's say Josh is on stage. He's backstage, he's getting ready for his first scene as Kristoff. And let's say Josh decides in that moment, you know, this role really doesn't have enough pizzazz for me. 
I need to add a little something more to it. And let's say the curtain rises, and suddenly Josh bursts in the middle of the stage and starts belting out Let It Go as loud as he can. And he's dancing around the stage, and he's just, I mean, it's crazy. And he's doing all this stuff. What would happen in that moment? Well, for starters, the rest of the cast on the stage, like Micah, Finn, and the others around, would probably be like, what in the world? is?" They'd be freaked out, right? Their faces would be like, oh my goodness, what's happening? And then Mrs. Wood would probably not be too happy, right? And I would imagine Alana wouldn't be too happy, but earlier I was talking to Alana about this illustration, and she said she kind of wanted to see it happen. So, I don't know, maybe she just wants chaos. That's, that's a little interesting. But regardless, it would be different. And my daughter, who knows every detail of Frozen, can quote it backwards and forwards. She would look at me in the middle of that and say probably something to the effect of, what is Josh doing? Right? What does he think he's doing right now? That's not his part. You see, in the play, Josh and all the other people involved have specific roles to fill. Josh's role does not involve letting it go. That's not what he's supposed to do. But he has a specific job that he is supposed to do. And in our text today in Colossians, Paul is continuing the same theme that we've seen so far in chapter 3 of union with Christ, but now he's continuing to apply that theme into every area of our lives. And specifically here, he's talking about our relationships with others and our specific roles within those relationships. We all have been assigned different roles in society that we are called to play. And our union with the all-sufficient, all-supreme Lord of the universe, Jesus Christ, will play itself out differently in the different roles that we have to play in society. That's Paul's point. And for some context, you can look a little bit earlier in the chapter. Look at verse 11 of chapter 3. Verse 11, talked about this last time. Paul, again, if you don't remember, he's referencing this new humanity that Jesus has brought about through his death and resurrection, right? This new people of God. And in this new humanity, in verse 11, Paul says that there is not Greek and Jew, there is not circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. In a very similar passage in Galatians 3, Paul does the same thing. Galatians 3.28, he says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Those are radical verses, right? There's this radical oneness that believers share in Jesus. He says there is no Jew and Greek, there is no slave and free, there is no even male and female. Everybody has this radical oneness, this newness, of who we are now in Jesus Christ. And it's, it's understandable then, when you read those words from Paul, and even maybe the Colossian church receiving these words from Paul, how they might have heard that and thought, okay, that means that every single distinction in society between any of us needs to be gone, right? Anything that separates men from women, or bosses from employees, or maybe from husbands, from wives, fathers, children, all of those different things need to be abolished. Get rid of those things, because we're all now one in Jesus. But Paul doesn't think that way. Paul, instead, says that this radical oneness we now share in our union with Christ will work itself out in the specific roles we have to play in the world. We all still are called to live in our specific roles in the relationships that God has given us on the planet, 
even though at the same time we have a new identity in Jesus Christ. So in this passage in Colossians 3, Paul's going to look at three relationships, okay? Look at your Bible, look at verse 18. Three relationships here. The first one in verses 18 and 19 is wives and husbands. Then in verses 20 and 21, Paul's going to talk about children and fathers or parents there. And then after that, in verse 22 through the first verse of chapter 4, Paul's going to talk about slaves and masters. All three of the relationships he addresses here involve authority. There's one person in the relationship who has authority over another, and the other party has to submit to their authority. And all three of these relationships that Paul mentions are within the context of the household. Even the slave and master relationship fell under kind of a household umbrella in their culture. Two of these relationships that Paul mentions are instituted by God himself. One of them is instituted by fallen man and does not come from the Lord. And in each relationship, Paul's going to give us specific instruction on how our union with Jesus, our connectedness with Jesus, will work itself out in the specific roles we have to play in these relationships. All right, is everybody following? So we're going to look at the first two relationships first, right? We're going to look at husbands and wives and children and fathers. So start in verse 18. Paul starts this whole section, and it's kind of abrupt. If you actually were to read it in the Greek, it's it's this phrase where it's like, he's like, wives, like he yells it. Like you could put an exclamation point, like wives, and then he says, submit. Husbands, do this. Children, fathers, do this. So he says wives, that's how he starts off. And he says the wives are to submit to their husbands. That word submit, if you were to translate it just straight from the word, is putting yourself under somebody else ordering your life under another person. That same word is actually used in the Gospel of Luke to talk about Jesus when he was 12 years old. You guys know this story? Jesus is 12, he goes to the temple, he's talking with the priests and the Pharisees there, the the religious leaders, and then he comes back to Mary and Joseph and it says that Jesus submitted to them. He placed himself under their authority. And I think we also should note that Paul uses a different word in this relationship than he'll use in the other two relationships. So look at verse 18. He says, wives are to submit. But in verse 20, children are to obey. And in verse 22, slaves are to obey. So wives are called to submit to their husbands, not to obey in the same way that children and slaves are called to do here. So Paul is talking about Willing, voluntary submission of wives to husbands. Wives are called to freely arrange their lives under the leadership of their husbands. In this passage and others like it, Paul lays down a principle. We don't have time to go all the way down this rabbit trail, but this is clear in Scripture, that husbands have the authority in the household. God has given them that role of authority, And wives are called to freely arrange themselves underneath the authority of their husbands. And Paul says that that's fitting in the Lord. For those who are in Christ, in union with him, this is the way they're called to live their lives. And on the other side of that relationship, look at verse 19. Paul says that husbands are called to love their wives. Now that sounds to us pretty like common sense. Husbands love their wives. But in Paul's day, that was radical. That was a crazy notion. These sort of household codes, like what we see in this passage, were kind of common in their day. 
But in most of those codes that were there, they just emphasized the man's authority over the wife, how he had authority. And Paul says, no, he has authority, sure, but the husband is called to love his wife. In Ephesians 5, in a parallel passage, Paul brings more information. He says, husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And then here, he gives even further clarification. He says that husbands are to love their wives and to not become bitter towards them, not to be harsh towards them, not to be domineering over their wives. And so for people who are in union with Christ, we see this relationship here, and it's a two-sided coin. Wives are called to subject their lives underneath the authority of their husbands, but husbands are called to love their wives and look out for the interests of their wives first in their leadership. The husband displays gentle Christ-like love. When we talk about a wife's submission, all of it's in this same context of a husband lovingly laying down his life for his wife. It's not, sometimes one side of that or the other is overemphasized. Paul doesn't do that. Wives submit to their husbands, and husbands love their wives. They're not harsh with them. All right, second relationships. That's the first one, wives and husbands. Second one starts in verse 20, and Paul is going to talk about children and parents. He addresses children here, and I think specifically that could be younger children, but also it could refer to anybody still living in their parents' house. So i.e., that's all of you guys whoever you're living with at home, your parent, your grandparents, whoever it is you're with, that's who he's talking to here, you living in that context. And he has an instruction for you. And the instruction is really complex. Are you ready for it? Paul says that children are to obey their parents. Complex, huh? Pretty simple. Children are called to obey their parents in everything. The only exception would be if your parents tell you to do something that explicitly goes against God's word, assumedly. Besides that, children are called to obey their parents. And Paul says that this sort of willing, quiet obedience of children to parents is pleasing to God for those who are in the Lord, in Jesus, in union with him. In his commentary on this section, John MacArthur kind of drives the nail home. This is important. Listen this way. This is especially important for those of you who are maybe older, trying to figure out what you're doing with your life. This is what he says. John MacArthur said, Many young people struggle with knowing God's will for their lives. Obeying their parents is a great place to start. It's a good question. This text, and others like it, clearly tell you that the Lord's will for you as a child in your parents' household is to obey your parents. If you ever wonder what the Lord's will is for you, that's, again, a great place to start. And then in verse 21, Paul turns his attention to fathers. All right? So he instructs the fathers and mothers, we could also probably add here, to not provoke their children. Fathers are called to not provoke their children. That means they're not called to exasperate their children or nag their children or to create resentment and foster rebellion in their children. Fathers are called to parent their children in such a way that the children don't grow, he says, discouraged. When they are provoked in this way, the children will become discouraged. They will lose heart. And as a dad, just talked about my kids earlier, I can attest that this command is needed. It's so easy as a parent 
to so focus on your children's behavior and the behavior you want them to accomplish that you lose sight of your children as people, as people in need of Christ, who need encouragement, who need love, who need care, not just robots you're trying to program. It's easy to fall into that trap. And as we finish up looking at children and fathers here, I want you to notice again that these two commands are interconnected, right? We saw how wives are submitting to their husbands in the context of the husband loving their wife. In the same way here, children obey their parents in everything while their parents are intentionally raising them in such a way so as to not foster bitterness and resentment and nagging them. They're not discouraging them. So there's a two-sided, again, coin here. Again, a little bit of a broader gap than husbands and wives. But again, we see both sides of the relationship have obligations to keep. All right, so those are the first two. Husbands and wives, and then parents, or children and parents, right? And then we've got a third relationship, slaves and masters. Now, some of you guys, depending on your translation, you might not see the word slaves in this passage, okay? I have ESV, it says bond servants. Um, KJV says servants. But the word in Greek is just doulos, it means slave. Paul's talking about slaves in this passage, and he's addressing the relationship of slaves to masters. Seems a little interesting, huh? I think before we move on, we've got to address a little bit of the elephant in the room. What's that? Well, is Paul endorsing slavery here? Ooh, apparently not. Is Paul endorsing slavery in this passage? Is he endorsing slavery in the passage? And so what we need to do then it's been a couple minutes, if this stand wants to like me. Oh, it does now. Okay, just can't put the Bible on it. We've got to spend a couple minutes talking about slavery in the New Testament in general. And I hope this is helpful for you. So we're going to take a rabbit trail, and we're going to talk about slavery in the New Testament context for just a couple minutes. hope that's interesting to you. hope it's helpful for you. Because you're going to run across passages like this, and you've got to know how to think about it. Okay? So here's a couple thoughts. First thought on slavery in the New Testament. In many ways, slavery in the era of the New Testament was very different from the slavery practice in the United States up until it was abolished. In many ways, it was really different. We have to, to talk about that first. One big distinction right offhand is when we think about slavery, all we think about is racial slavery, racist slavery, based on ethnicity. In the Greek and Roman Empire, in the Jewish era, what we're talking about there, it wasn't based on ethnicity in the same way. Slavery was not based on race. In fact, I read one um, article that talked about that the majority of slaves at this time were white. So slavery was not based on race in the same way. Here's a quote from a book. Again, this might be too much information. Maybe for some of the older guys, it's helpful. This guy, Murray Harris, wrote this book, Slave of Christ. He, like, dives into it. It's a really good book, um, at least the first chapters I read. And he said, In the first century, slaves were not distinguishable from free persons by race, by speech, or by clothing. They were sometimes more highly educated than their owners and held responsible posi professional positions. Some persons intentionally sold themselves into slavery for economic or social advantage. They could reasonably hope to be emancipated after 10 to 20 years of service or by their 30s at their latest. They were not denied the right of public assembly and were not socially segregated, at least in the cities. They could accumulate savings to buy their freedom. Their natural inferiority was not assumed. So the idea here is that slavery in a lot of ways was different. Okay, that's the first thought. But the second thought 
is that we shouldn't glamorize New Testament slavery. It still wasn't a good thing. We can't romanticize it and think, oh, well, it was just uh, completely 100% different. It was all good. It was, okay, there were aspects that were different. There were aspects that I guess could potentially be good in their society, but it's still not a good thing. In many ways, it was still brutal, it was still painful, and it was still dehumanizing. Uh, another source I read said that the, the main sources of ancient slaves were warfare, piracy, that's pirates, brigandage, that's like kidnapping or, or robbers, um, the international slave trade, kidnapping, infant exposure, natural reproduction of the existing slave population, and the punishment of criminals to the mines, or to gladiatorial combat. That means like the gladiators in the arena. So slavery was still a brutal, painful, dehumanizing thing. One human being owned another human being. It was not a good thing overall. Third idea, okay? When we look at the New Testament, the New Testament explicitly forbids slave trading. That's like kidnapping somebody forcefully and bringing them into slavery. The New Testament forbids that. And the New Testament also encourages slaves who can get their freedom to become free. Okay, so look at your Bibles. Turn with me to a couple verses here, right? Turn to 1 Timothy 1.10. Can you do that? Turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy 1.10. You guys, I want you to see these, because this will be helpful for you, I think. 1 Timothy 1.10. Paul's giving a list here. He starts in verse 9 saying, of the lawless and disobedient. He says of the ungodly and sinners. And then he kind of gives a list of ungodly, sinful, disobedient people. So these are bad things. And in verse 10, he mentions the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, and then enslavers. Those are kidnappers. Those are people who grab somebody and force them into the slave trade. And after that, he has liars, perjurers, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. So enslavement is seen as contrary to sound doctrine. The slave trade is seen as bad in the New Testament. You see it again in Revelation, and just for reference in the Old Testament, in Exodus. The slave trade is, is said is bad. And then in 1 Corinthians 7.21, turn to 1 Corinthians real quick, a little bit before Colossians. 1 Corinthians 7.21. Paul is talking to slaves here. And he says, were you a slave when called? That means when you came to faith in Christ. And he says, don't be worried about it. But then listen to what he says at the end of the verse. He says, but if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. If you can become free, do it. So Paul, in other writings, says the slave trade is bad. And he also says that if you're a slave and you can become free, you should become free. All right, so what does that mean? Coming back to our passage in Colossians. Well, that means that the New Testament never endorses slavery. That means it never promotes it. It never supports it. It never says slavery is a good thing that Christians should do. Not there. Slavery as an institution is founded by fallen man. It's not part of God's plan. The Bible does not endorse it. But what the New Testament does is that those writers give instruction on how people who are involved in this institution of slavery, which was so vital in their society, like it was a big deal in Roman culture. There were tons of laws about it. I mean, it was a, a huge part of how they supported their economy. Paul says that in that society, where it's there, he's giving instructions on how, how slaves and masters who come to faith in Christ should now act. 
Paul isn't endorsing slavery, but he's explaining how slaves and masters ought to behave now as followers of Christ. In this passage, specifically in Colossians 3, look at verse 22. So we're back in Colossians 3, verse 22. Paul says that slaves are to obey in everything those who are their earthly masters. Slaves are called to obey their masters. And then in the first verse of chapter 4, Paul says that the masters should treat their slaves justly and fairly, with justice and fairness. They're supposed to give that to their slaves. Again, in this passage, Paul's taking that idea of union with Jesus, and he's actually now, I think we've seen in those first two relationships and branching out this theme of Jesus as Lord, how he's Lord of all things, you're in union with the Lord of all, how that idea works itself out in every role you find yourself in in life. And that applies to God-ordained, God-good-given things from God, institutions like marriage and children and parents. And it also applies to things like slavery, slaves and masters. And it would be natural in their culture to extend this instruction all the way down to the slave-master relationship. All right, so that's a lot. But I think there's a question some of you might have at this point. Here's the question. Trying to anticipate. The question might be, well, if God doesn't endorse slavery, if God doesn't think slavery is good, then why didn't the biblical authors, like Paul here, why didn't Paul just tell the masters to free their slaves? Why didn't Paul say, hey, masters, free all your slaves. Let them all go. Get rid of the slave, slave at all, slavery at all. It's bad. Okay, and there's a whole lot of reasons we could talk about there. We could talk about practical things and moral things and logistical things. I mean, one thing right offhand is that when slaves revolted, it usually didn't go well for the slaves in Roman history when you look at it. Um, but I think the main thing to remember is this, okay? And this, I think, is helpful when thinking even about today and our cultural issues today. The Christian faith is concerned primarily with the individual not primarily with society. The gospel changes sinners, not the culture, at least at first. Uh, book, he said it this way, he said, Christianity, in its essence, is concerned with the transformation of character and conduct rather than with the reformation of societal structures. Its primary focus is on individual ethics within the Christian rather than on corporate ethics within society as large, on interpersonal relationships rather than on social reformation through institutional change. The principal change sought is in the individual, and the secondary is in society through transformed individuals. So, in other words, the gospel does change societies. Christians led the charge of the abolition of the slave trade. But the gospel does that by first changing people. And then that society made up of people then leads to the change of society. All right, one last note then on that. While the New Testament never directly advocates for the abolition of slavery, it does lay a framework for why slavery would be eventually abolished. So the New Testament never calls directly for slavery to be abolished, but it does lay a framework 
for later why it would be abolished. And I think probably the best example of that is in the book of Philemon. You guys ever read Philemon before? It's a really small little book. I turn there real quick. It's towards the end of your New Testament. You turn to Philemon? The book of Philemon. Philemon's a really interesting letter. It's written by Paul to this guy whose name conveniently is Philemon. Maybe that was a surprise to you. And Philemon was a guy who actually had a church that met in his house in the city of Colossae. He was a wealthy man. And as a wealthy man in the city of Colossae, who, again, the church house, Philemon owned slaves. He was a slave master. And he lived there in Colossae. If I can find it myself. Here it is. He lived there in Colossae. And the church met in his house, and he owned slaves there. And this guy, Philemon, had a particular slave named Onesimus. You guys ever heard this story before of Philemon? You have? Good. Onesimus. And Onesimus apparently decided he was tired of being a slave, as I'm sure you and I would feel the same way. And Onesimus robbed Philemon, took some stuff from him, apparently, based on what's said here in the letter, uh, or money or stuff, and he ran away, and somehow or another, Onesimus found himself in Rome. He's probably trying to get lost in just the big city, right? If you're, on the, if you're trying to get away from a situation, you're on the run, a good place to go is where there's tons and tons of people, okay? So Onesimus finds himself in Rome, and somehow or another in Rome, and we don't know exactly how, Onesimus meets the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, as you'll remember, was in prison in Rome. He meets Paul, maybe through Epaphras. Epaphras is from his hometown. Remember, they're from Colossae. And he meets Paul. And Paul, through Paul's ministry at least, Onesimus hears the gospel. And Onesimus becomes a Christian. And Paul says that Onesimus goes from being this runaway slave rebelling against his master to somebody incredibly useful for Paul in the ministry. Paul loves Onesimus. He, he says he wants to keep Onesimus with him, but... Paul recognizes that Onesimus needs to go back home. So Paul the Apostle sends Onesimus the slave back to his master Philemon. Philemon and Onesimus are now both Christians. And Paul sends him back home. And he sends this letter with Onesimus to basically support him and help him with Philemon. And assumedly, this letter of Philemon was carried with the letter of Colossians by Tychicus with Onesimus. Onesimus is mentioned in Colossians. They go there together. Can you imagine? You come back, this, this group comes from the Apostle Paul with this letter from Epaphras after this false teaching is threatening your church. You've been waiting for it. And then guess who shows up with Tychicus? The runaway slave, Onesimus. And he's coming back home to his slave master. And he's got a letter. And what Paul says in this letter is, is crazy. Look at verses 15 and 16. There's so much here. I, I wish we could take a couple chapels to look at Philemon, but we, we don't have them. But in verse 15, Paul says, look at Philemon, verse 15. Paul says, For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, remember that's a slave, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, as a brother, especially to me and how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. 
Do you see what the gospel does here? Paul sends him back, still a slave. And Paul seems to assume maybe Philemon's going to take some steps. If you read the letter, one commentator I said said that the word emancipation is like on Paul's lips, but he never says it. But he sends him back, and Paul says that these two men, once slave and master, even still in society, in the roles of slave and master, these two men are now brothers in Christ. They are brothers together. And so in that sort of teaching... The New Testament is laying this framework, right? That would eventually lead to the abolition of slavery. And there's a lot more I could talk about there. I mean, there's, there's tons we could look at. I even think about William Wilberforce and other men like him from church history. William Wilberforce was a Christian who led the charge of abolishing the slave trade in the British Empire. I mean, there's so much we could look at. But we've got to leave the rabbit trail, and we've got to come back to Colossians 3. All right? So back to Colossians 3. Remember where we are. Paul's taking our union with Jesus. He's applying it into every area of life, specifically our relationships with one another and our roles within those relationships. And Paul, in really the majority of these verses, verses 22 through the first verse of chapter 4, he's addressing slaves and masters. And Paul gives a lot of information here to slaves about how they are to act now as Christians. And if you think about it, it kind of makes sense, right? Paul's probably giving more information because he's sending this letter alongside Philemon with the runaway slave Onesimus. So he's giving a lot of information there about how union with Christ works itself out within the life of a slave. But I think even beyond that, we can take these principles here in verses 22 through 25 and apply them to the way that any of us serve anybody else. So whether you have a job, and you have a boss, and you're an employee, and you have to serve your boss, or whether you're just at home, and your parents, or your grandparents, or your uncle, or your aunt, tell you as somebody in authority over you to do something, like clean your room, or mow the lawn, or whatever it is, there, or even here at school, when a teacher asks you to help with something in class, or you get the opportunity to serve, there are basic principles here which help us to see how Christians should act in any of those situations. All right? And we're going to draw this out more fully in our peer-to-peer next week. We're going to focus on these verses to see these ideas about how we should act when serving somebody else. But let me just show you the three quick ideas here that he gives. Look at verse 22. Verse 22. Paul says that slaves are to obey in everything those who are not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. So, in our service to others, our goal must be to please Christ, not people. To please Christ, not people. He says that we're not called to be to just displaying eye service, just putting on externals, trying to look good when the, when the boss is around. We're not called to be people pleasers. Rather, we work from a singular heart in order to seek to please the Lord Jesus out of the healthy fear of him. All right, idea. Look at verses 23 and 24, the first part of 24. He says, whatever you do, work heartily. Right there, right? Whatever you do, work heartily. As for the Lord and other men, from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. So the second idea is that in our service to others, not only do we only seek to please God, to please Christ, not people, but we're called to work for Christ, not for people. In everything we do, we work from our souls, he says, for the Lord. 
and not for men. Why? Because if we persevere, the Lord will give us the eternal reward of inheritance. He's already mentioned that in Colossians 1. There's, we keep our eyes on the goal, Jesus himself, and we work for him. So we seek to please him, we seek to work for him, and then the third, the last part of verse 24 into verse 25, it says in the ESV, you are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. This is actually a command. He says, serve the Lord Christ. And I mentioned earlier that there's that word for slave, which is doulos. If you were to work at, look at this in the Greek, you'd see doulete here. It's the same sort of word from the same root. And so you could translate it, be a slave of Jesus. Be a slave of the Lord, of the Lord Christ. Why? Because the Lord will bring ultimate justice in the end. All wrongs will be punished, whether it's yours as the one serving, or if somebody mistreats you in your service to them. So we recognize that our ultimate master as believers is Christ, not people. And that brings us to a broader idea, which I'm not going to get distracted on too much. But in this letter, multiple times, Paul refers to Christians as slaves of Christ, as slaves of the Lord. In chapter 1, he says it about Epaphras. He says it again in chapter 4. And then in verse 7 of chapter 4, he says that Tychicus is a fellow slave, fellow servant, it says in the ESV, but fellow slaves, the word, in the Lord. So as Christians, we're, we are now underneath the Lord Jesus. He is our master, and we serve him in everything that we do. All right, I'm wrapping up, but let's just look at the first verse of chapter 4 real quick before we stop, okay? How does Paul instruct masters? We already noted what he says. He says that masters are to treat their slaves with justice and fairness. Um, there's a play in the, in the words here that we can't see. All right, if I look this way for a moment, we're almost done. There's a play in the words here that we can't see in the English. The word that's translated Lord and master in your Bible is the same Greek word. Kurios, same exact word. Lord and master are the same thing. And so here, Paul says that masters, you could say even lords, are to treat their slaves with justice and fairness because they also have a master, a lord, in heaven. And there's this theme we see there that we've actually seen the whole way through the passage, right? What's that theme? The theme is the lordship of Jesus, the one we have been brought into union with. All right, go back to the beginning of the passage, and let's walk it through real quick, and then we'll, we'll close out. Let's look even at the verse before, verse 17. Paul says, Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then wives are called to submit to their husbands because it is fitting in the Lord. In verse 20, children obey their parents and everything because that's pleasing in the Lord. In verse 22, slaves obey those who are their earthly masters, their lords here on earth, because they fear their Lord in heaven. That's verse 22. Verse 23, in whatever we do, we work heartily as for the Lord. Verse 24, we know that we will receive the inheritance from the Lord. The end of verse 24, we are now as Christians to enslave ourselves, to serve the Lord Christ. And then in verse 4 again, uh, the first verse of chapter 4 again, we just saw it. Slave masters are to treat their slaves justly and fairly because they have a master because the masters themselves are slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And so the big idea here then, in this passage, is that as Christians who have been brought into union with Jesus, we are called to take all of our relationships in life and bring them under the lordship of Jesus Christ. He is our Lord. Every area of our life is now under his command. Wives submit, husbands love, because they're under the lordship of Jesus. Children obey and parents don't provoke because they're under the lordship of Jesus. And again, in this context here, in the culture of where Paul is writing to, the slaves are to obey and the masters are to give justice and fairness because they're under the lordship of Jesus. If you are a Christian, bottom line, you have a new master. Jesus Christ is your Lord. He is your master. And you as somebody who has been brought into union with him, are his slave. That's how Paul is describing Christians here. And because we have this new Lord, and all of our lives are under his dominion, we belong to him, he is our life, we've already seen in Colossians, then everything in our lives should be changed. Every aspect of the way we live and interact with one another is different. And as we work out our roles in society based on who we are in Christ, we do so under Jesus' lordship. All right, let's pray. Lord God, thank you for this passage. Thank you for texts of scripture that are hard for us. I mean, we, in, our, in our day and age, in our culture, we see this word slaves in our Bible and masters, and we're like, what? It seems so different. It seems so off. I mean, what's going on here? But thank you for the clarity that your word gives us. Lord, thank you that your gospel can go to the deepest part of the human heart and that by your, your gospel, through your spirit, you're pleased to regenerate hearts so that they might respond to Christ in faith. You take out the heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh that we might honor you with our lives. Lord, you bring us out of union with Adam to union with Christ. You are forming a new humanity in Christ and that changes everything about the way we live. Lord, I pray moreover that these students, those who know the Lord, would understand their status as a slave of Christ, how he's their master now. They belong to him. Jesus owns us if we are in Christ. And that's a beautiful, wonderful thing. I wouldn't want my life to be in anybody else's hands. Jesus is so good and kind and merciful and true and loving and full of peace and joy and life. And he now shows us the way to live here in this world as part of his new humanity. I pray that our students might see clearly the importance of these roles as laid out in scripture, that you do give us people in our lives, authority figures we're called to submit to, that you do give us um, responsibilities with others and how in all of those things, um, we are called to display this newness that we've received in Jesus. And that'll work itself out in different ways. God, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for sending Jesus to die and rise again for us. Thank you for the life we have in him. And I pray that we would honor you. Even as we approach the end of the year, I pray that you give these students diligence and perseverance that they might please you and all they say and do for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.